And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist with deep jawbreaker eyes. Red rope hair, gumdrop lips, cotton candy thighs. You're my Welcome everyone, it's Podcast 25 and the beginning of our podcast year. It's October again, and that means Halloween. In honor of this great holiday, we're going to give you our top 8 Halloween records. Then we have an expose on the great voice artist Paul Freese. Still later, we have a tale from the frightened and another offering from Vincent Price. Then we cap it all with an H.P. Lovecraft selection, plus more stuff. So, this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Let's get started. Tonight, meet the twisted genius of Edgar Allan Poe. Experience a terrifying tale of druid witchcraft and the scream that kills. Cry of the Banshee. American International presents new heights in horror never before filmed. Vincent Price stars in this new adventure in Terror and Torture. Don't miss Cry of the Banshee. You'll learn to fear it. Rated GP. When hinges creak in doorless chambers and strange and frightening sounds echo through the halls, whenever candlelights flicker where the air is deathly still, that is the time when ghosts are present, practicing their terror with ghoulish delight. What a magnificent voice. Such depth and wispy creepiness. Beautiful. It was through this glorious ghost host voice that many of us were introduced to Paul Fries. Others were introduced through Rankin and Bass and or the Rocky and Bowinkle show. But a bunch of us first came into contact with Fries when we entered the haunted mansion at Disneyland and heard the host's voice. After hearing it, we had to know who the owner was. We found out he was a man called Paul Fries, a man who also did voices for the Pirate Ride, the Shrink Machine, and great moments with Mr. Lincoln. We looked into him more and found we had already heard his voice many times before, but didn't know it. In the Bullwinkle cartoons, and in Tom Slick's Super Chicken, George of the Jungle, 
on Dudley Do-Right, Fractured Fairy Tales, the Rankin and Bass holiday shows, and all kinds of Hanna-Barbera cartoons and some of our favorite commercials. To this very day, I'm finding more voices that Paul Fries did on records, movies, TV, and an old radio. The list goes on and on. Tonight, we're going to celebrate the great man, not only his creative body of work, but also learn about the man himself. Well, some of the man, anyway. Because, as his biographer has written, Paul Fries was a man of mystery. Before we go any further, let's listen to just a smattering of the prolific man's work. HP 7492. Chase sequence, masculine chorus, laughter, kissing sounds, and ad libs. Ha ha ha! Come here, lass. Here you be, sport. How's about a nice, thick, juicy bone? Over here, spot. Over here. Now, easy boy. Don't drop it. Okay. Suspended in the timelessness of inner space are the thought waves of my first impressions. They will be our only source of contact once you have passed beyond the limits of normal magnification. Now take this down. It's a difficult responsibility that you accept from the number one lawmaker, me. Have it known throughout the land from sea to sea. There'll be no more toy makers to the king. You forgot to reverse the charges. If she wants ten pounds, I'll give her ten pounds. One, two, three, four. Detergents alone cannot do what I do. So know my name and learn my lessons well. Really? Under a microscope, watch these shirts get washed with and without the hottest place in America, the hottest month in the year, Death Valley in July. That's what makes his rice dishes so original. Here's New Harvest, rice with corn, carrots, and cheese. They're in your grocer's freezer, but watch out for the waffle whiffer. Once upon a time, there was an ant and a grasshopper. The ant worked day and night, never enjoying himself. Look at Mother Smile. She knows Johnson's Wax will do what Junior couldn't do. So, with willing housewives as accomplices, the notorious Dirt Brothers moved in. But if you tried it, you know, you'd really like it. It's good for you. And the tortoise and the hare, both of them following each other. George of the Jungle is brought to you by Fractured Flickers. Pittsburgh Paints from PPG Industries. Wherever you see me. The Pittsburgh Paints Peacock. Don't forget home-baked at your house. Bake Pillsbury. <laughs> Look out! It's red! Hello, Dudley. This is Inspector Fenwick. I want you to go and find little Nell. Hi there. I'm an undeer. And I'm what? I've been waiting for you. You with the teeth. Sometimes we hide in shag carpet. Three, five, four, five. Hey, Green Giant! What's new besides ho, ho, ho? That's what makes his rice dishes so original, Sprout. Oh, 
really? I'm so very impressed by you, Mr. Linda. Once upon a time, a beautiful princess was looking for her Prince Charming. The only offer was a free wish for a kiss. Stan Freeberg modestly presents the United States of America. Hey, baby, you're shaking. Yeah, let me lay this line on you. If you need a little bread, you come right on down and see. Or digging the sights and getting hungry. So look for Kellogg's Fruit Loops. Follow your nose. Gee, I don't know. I ain't ever done that before. One day, Chicken Little was playing in the yard. The sky is falling. The sky is falling, you know. And don't forget, the next time you tune in Walt Disney, this is Ludwig van Dijk saying, <laughs> Nobody ever gave Mean Jean those dinners when I was a kid. Please, you wouldn't hate Squiddly Diddly, would you? <laughs> Hello from Muncie, Indiana, the sports capital of the world. Say, they're really gonna love it. Small dog dinner for smaller, choosier appetites. That navel means they're good to eat, too, you dumb kid. All us potato chips felt the same way when those new crunches moved in. Plus, I'm building an all-chocolate world with the Nestle's all-chocolate house. <laughs> yes, this is Boris Bedenov speaking. <laughs> Don't forget to write. Dawes Butler, the voice for everyone from Yogi Bear to Barney Rubble, said that Freeze had great timing and rhythm. Bill Scott, Jay Ward's partner and writer, as well as a voice artist himself, said that Paul Freeze was the single greatest voice man he had ever heard. John Stevenson, radio actor, said, You never knew if Paul Freeze was serious or kidding about a lot of things. He was putting on the world. Editor and writer Skip Craig lamented, That Paul was very verbose, with a million stories. You'd never get a session started with him. And Jane Foray, the goddess of voice work, said simply that Paul Freeze was a nut, but he was a joy to work with. As you can see, the man had many facets. He was known for being confident to the point of arrogance, but was quick to praise his fellow actors. He was called Mel Blank, Dean of the Voice Artists, and said that Bill Scott was the best doggone voiceman in the whole cartoon business, for example. He could be stubborn if you asked him for one of his paintings, but was always generous with gifts and helping out. Lauren Green stayed with Freeze when Lauren was getting on his feet, for instance. Then there was Lenny. He lived with Freeze on and off for years. He didn't have a penny, but he made everyone laugh. He was the best man at Freeze's wedding and was always dressed beautifully, probably because of Freeze. When Lenny and Paul went out to dinner with a group, Paul would pass money under the table to Lenny so that the ladies thought Lenny was always buying. Most people probably thought he was a millionaire. He always did have a beautiful woman on his arm. Speaking of beautifully dressed, Paul was always in Brooks Brothers suits, complete with a fancy watch fob from his collection and cufflinks with gems on them. He had a chauffeur, too, at his prime, and he loved to be driven around in his classic Rolls Royce. Napkins were called servettes to him, and he loved fine food. By the 60s, voice work had been very good to Paul Freeze. His son Fred said that his dad had a saying, We are the Freezes and we do as we pleases. He also worked hard, all day, five days a week, sometimes weekends, going from job to job. 
He still had a good time, though. When doing commercials or voiceovers, he'd come into the studio and just entertain for the first half hour, meeting everyone, making them laugh, but he'd also be looking and listening, figuring out the clients and crew. Then just when people started to get nervous about the time, he'd bang out the job in 15 minutes, and everyone would be happy with the results. His real joy was the old radio drama and the Jay Ward days. That's where he knew and respected everyone there. During those sessions, he was always on, telling stories and jokes, keeping people laughing, and them keeping him laughing, ad-libbing, coming up with ideas, and just having the wonderful feeling you were doing good work. As you might have guessed, Paul Fries was a talker. One of the reasons he didn't like school as a kid is they wouldn't let him talk. On the phone, it was hard to get him off. One Fred said that sometimes he just had to say, I'm going, Paul, and he had to hang up. Paul's son, Fred Freeze, said sometimes he'd call his dad, and the man would say in a whisper, You'll have to do all the talking tonight, Fred. I'm resting my voice. And then go on and talk for two hours anyway. At home, Paul Freeze could be quiet, sometimes even sedate, just watching movies or painting. Yeah, he was also an artist, too. Towards the end of his life, he lived alone and barely left his house. But before this time, he loved to entertain. Card parties, house parties, all sorts of parties, with voice actors, celebrities, and all kinds of interesting characters. Paul could be very conservative, and in later days, his best friends were in law enforcement. But he was also friends with the like of John Lennon and Elvis, so go figure. And Paul would pick up a conversation with anyone. Gas station attendants, the owners of restaurants he liked, all sorts of people. He was always ready to visit. And yet Fred Fries said his dad had another phrase, the masses are asses. And he was always saying that people were flakes, and he was terrified his son Fred would become one. Offsetting the conservative side was the prankster side of Paul Fries. He'd go out to dinner with people and suddenly take on the character of a foreign dignitary with an accent and all, and then introduce one of his guests as royalty and keep this up all night. One time, Lauren Green kept getting these suggestive phone calls from this very sexy-sounding woman. Lauren was married at the time, so this was becoming annoying and embarrassing. One day when Lauren was out somewhere, he heard that sexy voice behind him, but when he turned around, all he found was Paul Freeze doubled over in laughter. Along with his voice work and narration, Paul Fries did a lot of looping for movies. He'd sit in a booth and watch film playback and replace the character's voice with his own. Sometimes this was because the original actor's voice was hard to understand. In Midway, this was the case with the great actor Toshiro Mifune. He ended up with the very Freeze voice. In Some Like It Hot, Paul Fries did Tony Curtis's drag falsetto because Freeze could do it better. Sometimes the actors just couldn't make it in for the looping, and Freeze would have to imitate their voice. This was the case for Orson Welles and the lady from Shanghai, and for Humphrey Bogart in his last movie, The Heart of They Fall. Here's an example of a Paul Freeze impression. It's of Ed Wynn singing a very familiar song. You like to ride in my beautiful balloon? <laughs> Would you like to glide 
in my beautiful balloon. We could float among the stars together, you and I. Oh, we can fly. <laughs> we can fly. Up, up and away, my beautiful, my beautiful balloon. That's really that fun. <laughs> Love is waiting there in my beautiful balloon. Way up in the air in my beautiful balloon. If you'll hold my hand, I'll scream. We'll take the dream across the sky. For we can fly. <laughs> we can fly. Up, up and away, my beautiful my beautiful balloon. All right, everybody that's going for the balloon ride, step aboard. Good morning, sir. You're here for the balloon ride? First class, step right in. Coffee, tea, or what? Say, hablo, what? That's fun. Oh, you're, you're going high? Oh, I'm going high. High what? High jack, high, high jack. <laughs> My name is, oh, I see. Yes, you mean we're going straight? Folks, there's been a change in plan. We, we're going to visit the gorgeous sugarcane field. Now let's look briefly at Paul Free's early adventures and hear some clips from his classic radio work. Paul Fries was born with the name Solomon Hirsch Fries in Chicago in 1920. Solomon soon became Sully and then Paul. Paul changed his middle name later to Hardcourt because he thought it sounded more impressive. His parents had immigrated from Russia and had three other children, two more boys and a girl. Paul was the youngest and liked to entertain even at an early age. He had a deep voice even then and would sing for relatives and strangers alike. He also drew and could use his mouth to imitate various musical instruments. Like I said before, he never was a big fan of school. Whenever he could manage it, he would play hooky, and often he would go to the vaudeville shows. Eventually, he started to copy the actors' voices and their fake accents. He got so good that sometimes when the school authorities would call about Paul's absences, he would intercept the phone call and create a whole house of relatives who couldn't quite speak English. In high school, this boy of many talents decided to take art more seriously, and Fries got a part-time job with a painter. He cleaned the man's painting palette and did odd jobs, all the time watching the artists at work to learn his techniques. One day, Paul discovered that an amateur hour show was being produced on another floor in the artist's building. On a whim, Paul auditioned, and he got in, and he did very good, doing the impressions he had taught himself. Soon, he auditioned for another show, and he did even better. He did more shows, and sometimes one. This was a revelation to Paul. He was making money entertaining. So art went out the window, and showbiz became Paul's life. At age 14, he convinced his parents and the school to let him join a traveling vaudeville troupe for a year. That led to other vaudeville jobs, and then eventually to nightclubs, where he changed his name to Buddy Green. He did everything there. He emceed, danced, sung, told jokes, and again did impressions. He wasn't exactly getting rich, but he was honing his craft 
and his skills at self-promotion. He billed himself as the boy that did some of the voices for Disney, then later as the boy who did most of the voices for Disney, then all of the voices. This was 20 years before he did anything for old Walt. Walt Disney and he had a great laugh about this in later years, when Paul Fries was doing the Professor Von Drake voice. This nightclub life continued until Paul was 22 when World War II came. It was then that Paul found himself in the infantry and training at Fort Rucker, Alabama. During the week, he had the normal infantry skills training, but on weekends, he'd train for special services. How he got into that, I don't know. Maybe his language skills or maybe his artistic ability. But this was the beginning of a thread of covert and law enforcement involvement that ran through Paul Fries's life. At Rooker, Paul also met his first wife, Audrey McLeod, who was working there at the camp. It was a whirlwind romance, and the two were married before Paul was sent overseas to join the Normandy invasion. The invasion was horrible for Fries, as it was for all the soldiers, and he spoke little of it in his later life. But he did tell one story. He and a few men had got themselves trapped between the two lines, and either one was likely to shoot him. So when they went by the Germans, they would yell out, Don't shoot! I'm German! In German! And when they went by the Americans, they'd yell out, Don't shoot! I'm American! Later, in the lulls between battles, Paul was part of a group that would reclaim the bodies from the field and then identify them. In a later battle, Paul Fries broke his leg on some uneven ground and was sent to London to recover. While he was there, the doctors noticed what they termed as extreme nervousness. He had violent outbursts, constant nightmares, and panic attacks. Today it would be called severe PTSD. Paul thought they were sending him back to the front when his leg got better, but instead they discharged him from the service with a purple heart. For some time he continued to use a cane when he walked and found it hard to cross the street without having a panic attack. During his recovery, he began paying again for relaxation. He left the army with the idea of making a living as an artist. He even started attending Chouinard Art School with a VA loan. But his wife began to get sick, and Paul turned to what he knew best to make money, entertainment. At first, he still went to the school in the day while getting radio jobs at night. But soon, he dropped out of school and was just working in radio. Despite her medical care... Paul's wife died of an infection after an operation. He was devastated. Freeze threw himself into work and took as many jobs as he could get to help him forget. At the time, he could do 100 impressions and three or four variations of every dialect, and he could act. And then, of course, there was Paul's natural rich voice. Freeze began to build a reputation. Within two years, he was acting in 35 radio shows a week. He also began to voice Barney Bear cartoons, and along with Eddie Brandt, Spike Jones' drummer, he wrote novelty songs. Here's what is probably Freeze's most notable collaboration with Eddie and Spike, My Old Flame. But it's funny now and then How my thoughts go flashing back again To my old flame 
I've met so many who had fascinating ways of fascinating gaze in their eyes. Some who took me up to the skies, but their attempts at love were only imitations of my old flame. I can't even think of her name. But I'll never be the same until I discover what became of my old of human heads. But it's funny now and then how my thoughts go flashing back again to my old flame. My old flame. My my new lovers all seem so tame. They they won't even let me strangle them. For I haven't met a girl so magnificent or elegant as my old flame. I, I've met so many who had fascinating ways, a fascinating gaze in their eye. I saw this eye, so I removed the other eye, that eye that kept winking and blinking at other men. It was me, I was, it, it was, it, it. Some who took me up to the skies. But their attempts at love were only imitations of my old flame. I I can't even think of her name. What was her name? Doris, Laura, Chloe, Manny, Moe, Jack. No, it couldn't have been Moe. I, I can't stand it, I tell you. This is driving me sane. She would always treat me mean, so I poured the can of gasoline and struck a match to... <coughs> my... <laughs> Paul Fries said many times that his career in radio was the best of times. Only his work with the Jay Ward crew could compare. It wasn't just the challenge and the creative satisfaction, it was also the camaraderie. Many times he'd be working with the same group of actors, the insurance policy as he called them, those that could give what was needed every time and fast. There was Hans Conrad, Daz Butler, Jack Webb, Frank Lovejoy, Charles McGraw, William Conrad and others. All these became a band of brothers. William Conrad was a particular favorite. He's probably best known now for his canon character from the 1970s and the Jake and the Fat Man show that ran from 87 to 92. He, by the way, was the Fat Man. People would also recognize his voice from voiceovers and as a narrator on such shows as Tales from the Unexpected, 
Buck Rogers and Manimo. All these actors would have great fun together, telling jokes, pulling pranks, and just doing great radio work. At first, Paul was sort of naive, and so he became the butt of a lot of pranks. But he was a fast learner, and soon he became so good at it that he became even a bigger target because of retaliation. One time he's had his script set on fire in the middle of a show, and he had his pants pulled down a number of times, and once they tied him to a chair right on the air while he was doing the show, but he never flubbed a line. After the show was over, by the way, they wheeled Paul out into the lobby and left him. Paul could always make William Conrad laugh, and vice versa. They loved the telling the jokes and the stories, but they also got the work done, and it was good. Freeze was on a ton of shows. Suspense, Gunsmoke, Rocky Jordan, just to name a few. My favorite Freeze performances, though, were the ones for Escape. William Conrad was there with them, and they would often take turns doing the opening narration. When Freeze was starring, Conrad would do the narrating, and vice versa. Here's an example of a few of Freeze's roles on the show. I confess that the first sight of the house, the fungus-covered walls of stone thrusting their crumbling ramparts against the darkening sky, rising out of the sullen, sluggish waters of the black tarn at their base, the bleak and vacant windows staring blindly, the bone-white trunks of decaying trees, these things filled me with a nameless and desolate terror so that I reined in my horse and sat trembling, half fearing to cross the wooden bridge that led over the waters of the moat and up to the entrance of the House of Usher. It was very dark. So dark I could have slept without closing my eyes. The night would have been my eyelids. I puffed at my pipe, got drowsy... Then I was wide awake. A gun out there in the water, a gun. I sprang to the rail, strained my eyes in the direction of those shots, but I couldn't see a thing. I leaped up on the rail to get better elevation, and my pipe striking a rope was knocked out of my mouth. I lunged for it, and tight fingers closed around my heart as I realized I'd reached too far and lost my balance. Ah! The blood-warm waters of the Caribbean closed over my head. When I came to the surface, the wash from the speeding yacht slapped salt water into my mouth, making me gag and strangling me. I coughed and spat it out and found my voice. Help! 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 Can you not hear the path as you walk? I can see it. There is no such word as see. Cease this folly and follow the sound of my feet. Oh, my time will come. You will learn. There is much to learn in the world. Has no one ever told you in the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king? Blind? What is blind? Oh, never mind. Bogota, I must warn you. Just keep quiet and learn. And stop this nonsense about seeing. Nonsense, is it? I'll show you I've taken enough of your insults, unformed mind. Got no sense yet. I'll be king here. I can see and I'll be king. Bogota, stop it. No, I'm through with your orders. I'll show you what an advantage sight can be. 
I can hit you and hurt you, and you can't see me to strike back. Bogota, put down that spade. You devil, your ears are sharp, aren't they? Bogota, there must be no violence. By heaven, I'll hit you if you come any closer. I swear I will. Put down that spade and come off the grass. You don't understand. You are blind, and I can see. I can see. Bogota. I'll hurt you. I swear I will. Put down that spade. Leave me alone. (laughs) Freeze played so many different characters on the radio, it was probably just inevitable that he'd have his own show where he played everybody. And that show was The Player. It was an anthology series, and yes, he played every character, every week, except for the announcer. The radio days were glorious for Paul, but they began to fade. He became very nervous, and he began to double his efforts in trying to get regular acting jobs in film and television. He'd made attempts before, but now it was really serious. He got quite a few film roles over the years, and all of them had good lines, but never any leads. He was best known, probably, for Dr. Voorhees in The Thing from Another World. Along with his in-front-of-camera roles, he still did voiceovers for film. Although Paul did a lot of -of in-front-of-the-camera roles, most of his work was done in voiceovers for film. Here's two of my favorites from Earth vs. the Flying Saucers and The Time Machine. People of Earth, attention. People of Earth, Attention, this is a voice speaking to you from thousands of miles beyond your planet. They're coming down to take over. They made that clear to us in the saucer. These are the talking rings? Yes. They speak. Of what? Things no one here understands. Make it talk. between the East and West, which is now in its 326th year, has at last come to an end. There is nothing left to fight with and few of us left to fight. The atmosphere has become so polluted with deadly germs that it can no longer be breathed. There is no place on this planet that is immune. The last surviving factory for the manufacture of oxygen has been destroyed. Stockpiles are rapidly diminishing. And when they are gone, we must die. My name is of no consequence. The important thing you should know is that I am the last who remembers how each of us, man and woman, made his own decision. Some chose to take refuge in the great caverns and find a new way of life far below the Earth's surface. The rest of us decided to take our chances in the sunlight, small as those chances might be. Paul Fries actually got his own movie made in 1960. He wrote it and directed it, the little opus, The Beatniks. These are the Beatniks. The defiant young, coming from every walk of life, wrought with suppressed emotions and mocking the everyday course of modern society, intent on striking back as they wage a battle for their right to be heard. Now, coming to the screen, the pulsating story of today's youth, apart and alone, living by their code of rebellion and mutiny, the Beatniks, 
a moving story with insight and understanding of a craze that is sweeping the nation. Revealing, as it holds the answers to the beatnik questions all America is asking. It didn't fare very well, and it soured Paul on the idea of directing for good, but not writing. From the 40s until the early 70s, he wrote or bought for development scripts and treatments for radio, film, and television. There were some... There were game shows, comedies, and dramas, and a number of them sold over the years. Paul Frey's most successful television show was The Millionaire. It was on CBS from 1955 to 1960. In it, Paul played, what else, an eccentric millionaire who gives a million dollars to different people each week. Each episode goes on to show what happens to those people, sometimes good things, sometimes bad things. Paul Fries came in at the beginning, but you only saw the back of his head, or maybe his hand, as he was handing the check to his assistant. After the millionaire show, the floodgates opened again, with cartoons and especially commercials. The 60s were probably Paul Fries's busiest decade, but by the mid-70s, the work began to lessen again, but this time by Paul's choice. He began to only take the biggest accounts now, or his favorites, like the Rankin and Bass shows. He did the hardware wars as a favor and in trade for some work around the house. What began to take up more of his time now was painting, birds, and law enforcement. I mentioned earlier that Freeze was in training for the special services during World War II, but that this was just the beginning. Well, in later years, Paul Freeze began to work for the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. He even had a badge to prove it. And this led to some crazy stuff. Paul's son, Fred Freeze, stated that his father and Elvis, at one point, worked undercover together. This was after Elvis got his badge from Richard Nixon. Nobody knows what Freeze did exactly for the Bureau, but his role with the Marin County Sheriff's Department is clearer. He had a badge for the Sheriff's Department and an ID card, and was allowed to ride along on bus. He even did voices for undercover work, and he would serve as lookout sometimes. On one of those occasions, he was in front of a house in disguise, with the sheriffs waiting inside. The men to be arrested walked up the drive and noticed Paul talking into his collar. He was speaking into a microphone to warn the sheriffs. One of the men asked, Who are you talking to? And Paul said in some kind of a character voice, To God. The men all laughed and then walked in the house and got busted. After Paul's death, Fred Freeze found a disguise kit full of fake beards and other disguises. After Paul Freeze's death, Fred Freeze found among his effects a disguise kit full of fake beards and other disguise items. This last is a sad reminder, for Paul Freeze has indeed passed away. As I said before, the work slowed, and as I also said before, Paul left his house less and less in the later years. This was the home in Tiburon, up in Marin County. Freeze always had a melancholy, lonely streak, and the death of one of his wives and the failed marriages of three others didn't help. But he also had a zest for life and life's pleasures. Even at the end, he enjoyed the company of others and good conversation, but he had become more isolated. On November 2, 1986, at the age of 66, Paul Freeze died in his home in Tiburon, California. The official press release said that he died of a heart failure, but that had been caused by an overdose of pain pills. 
The death certificate reads suicide. It would not have been unlike him to take his own life at that point, but it also would not be unlike him to overdose by accident. So we'll never really know. What I do know is that Paul Fries brought a lot of joy to people, through his work and through himself as a person. He also brought a lot of aggravation. He was a human, a very talented and hard-working one, one that has been my hero ever since I first heard his voice on the Haunted Mansion ride. The cynics are calling it Chicken Little Day, the day when Skylab will fall from its orbit, dispersing into hundreds of pieces as it careens through Earth's atmosphere. Tons of flaming metal falling at hundreds of miles per hour toward an unknown destination, even though the odds are one in millions that you may be the unknowing target, the question does remain. Why take chances? Protect yourself with an official CKLW hard hat stating, I survived Skylab. Perhaps you can't afford not to listen. For more details on C-K-L-W. Are you one of the frightened? Do you have trouble sleeping at night? Do you find yourself tossing restlessly in bed? I wonder why. Perhaps you saw something during the waking day that troubled you. What was it? That, that strange man on the bus or... Or the curious manner of that woman in the drugstore. Or maybe your story is like the bizarre incident in the life of John LeGrew. John LeGrew was a bachelor, but not by choice. For 12 long years since the war, he'd supported his ailing mother and denied his own happiness. You see, his anemic salary at the watch factory had not permitted any thoughts of increasing the LeGrew household. But John had had something out of life. In 1944, in France, during the war, he had met Denise Franson, the wonderful little French girl who had been the only love of John's shallow life. But a bombardment of her little village and the silence that followed had left John with only one conclusion. Denise was dead. Well, the war ended and he had returned to America and his mother and the watch factory. And the dull years had ticked away with the clocks. But one day, everything changed. John came home after a day at the factory, and his mother said that a girl named Denise had called and wanted to talk to him. John couldn't believe his ears. There must be some mistake. Denise was dead. She had to be. But no. During dinner, the telephone in the hallway rang again. John rushed to answer it. It was impossible, it was unbelievable, but the sweet voice on the other end of the line was the same broken English of Denise Franson, and a dozen questions spilled from his heart. Where was she? How had she been? Why had she waited all these years to get in touch with him? Did she still love him? But oddly, Denise couldn't say much. 
Her voice seemed faint and shaky, but she gave out a telephone number. Butterfield 87777 and insisted that John should call her at that number at midnight. All the rest of the evening, John was in a fever of impatience. The tiny clock in the bureau mocked him as the hour and minute hands slowly crawled round to the appointed hour. Finally, it was midnight, and John lifted the phone from the hook and dialed the number. male voice asked who was calling. Surprised, John wanted to know if he had the right number. Yes, it was Butterfield 87777. Whom did he want to speak to? John asked for Denise Franson. The voice seemed puzzled. I'm sorry, I don't seem to recognize the name. John's voice trembled. I'm sorry, he said, but this number was given to me to call at midnight and... The man's voice interrupted him, saying, Oh, of course, I beg your pardon. Denise Frasson? Yes, certainly, I remember now. The body was delivered for embalming yesterday morning. Looks like an automobile accident, and yet, well, in the midst of life, we are in death. John Legrue hung up and sat in his chair, staring at the wall for a long, long time. And to this day, he still sits staring at a wall. And hears a voice, a soft, sweet, trembling voice asking him to call and call and call. Well, I leave you. This is Woodlawn. What? Oh, I thought you knew. The Woodlawn Cemetery is my destination. Uh, you see, I live here. Goodbye for a while, and, and do call me when you get a chance. things that make up a good Halloween. The free candy, of course, and costumes and parties. And it would not be quite complete without having the Halloween records. The kind of the soundtrack of Halloween. Absolutely. And that doesn't mean we just play them on Halloween. We play them all the time. You know, making haunted house, doing plays, just listening to them. Well, I just remember back in the day when you would scare the crap out of me playing those records when I was sleeping. <laughs> So we're going to have our top eight favorites tonight. And we're not going to include the thrilling, chilling sounds of the haunted house because everyone knows that one. It's the great one. It's a glorious one. It'll just suck all the air out of the room. So we're going to give a little bit of love to some of the others that don't get so much of it. Absolutely. So let's let's start. Let's start with number eight. That's 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 my number eight. What is it? And number eight is interesting because I don't know if it can even count as a Halloween record, except for the title and the first thing. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? And that is Stereodynamics 
to scare the hell out of your neighbors. <laughs> Was this an, a stereo experiment record? So basically, uh, it, it's right around when stereo was... Uh, mass marketed to the to the, okay. you know, to everybody, so it was actually designed to be a test record for your stereo system. Okay, and so they gave you all these things in in stereo, and they just labeled it, it on the back. The actual instruction said to test your hi-fi or scare the hell out of your neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the instruction in the back. Now it's a it's a collection of. J- some jazz, some classical, really? but yes, it's it's just a you know an odd assortment of things. Nothing particularly scary, except the first track is entitled "Adolf Hitler." <laughs> what? <laughs> Done by the London Philharmonic Orchestra. <laughs> they made a theme, and the thing is a classical piece. With the recording of a group of people yelling "Seek Heil" <laughs> throughout the whole thing. What the heck is that? And about? if that's not a disturbing thing, I don't know what is, Frank. <laughs> what are the liner notes? What was that all about? Was that a piece made just for that, or is is it is that a high? They, the, they really like the thing didn't have liner notes. It's just like, hey, boom, and obviously. It was some kind of thing that was crazy that they they as a gag. Uh, these guys put it on their record. They're like, "Hey, we're gonna make a record. Let's include this thing." And it just says, you know. And I think the title's apropos because I think that would scare the hell out of your neighbors <laughs> if they heard that for the first time in stereo, mind you. So I think the second uh, channel would be see Kyle. I don't know, but <laughs> anyways. Well, very good. That I don't know is if the I first play that on Halloween or not, but we'll count it. All right. Well, that was number eight. Number seven is Ghostly Sounds. It was a Peter Pan Records uh, in 1975. It came out, and the cover art. That's one of the great things about it is is by a man named George Peed. He did t- uh, tons of cartoon records. If if you look in the sixties and seventies and you see the cover for like Bozo or Disney stuff, it was all this guy. And he had been a Disney animator. He had done designs for Fantasia and a bunch of other, you know, of the Disney classic so animated films. Retired or? Well, it was towards the end of his career. Uh, see, he, he he joined up in World War Two. You know, as a lot of people, and it threw off his career. When he came back, he worked as a commercial artist, and then he started doing the record covers. But before that, he did designs for the Marty Hercules. Remember the old? Oh, yeah. (laughs) With the strength of ten ordinary men. So that was his work. And so that's, the cover has this great weird vampire. It's kind of cartoony, but it's wonderfully done with his chained ghoul, this green creature. And on the back, it's like the ghoul broke free into smashing skeletons or something or other. Now, a side note, the brother of George Pete is Bill Pete. And Bill Pete is known by a lot of people as a children's illustrator. Um, he's really Pete is his last name, but he changed it to, to Pete. They both worked at Disney, but um, he continued on during the war, and then he went on to do more and more Disney films. His last one was Jungle Book. And then after that, he started doing the children's illustrations. And he has a really distinctive style. I love it. He's one of my favorites. And one of my favorite uh, kids' books, the uh, the Wug Lump. Wug, what is it? 
Wugwump Planet. I'm getting it all wrong. But all sorts of other ones. Look them up. It's great. So anyway, that's just a famous brother of the guy who did the record cover. And it was narrated by Peter Walden. And it was produced by Gershon Kingsley. Now this guy, his real name, and I'm going to get this completely wrong, is Goats Gustav Kinzinski. And he was a German composer. He was born in 1922 in Germany. And he was the pioneer of electronic music and the Moog synthesizer. And this is a guy who was a producer for this record. And now when you listen to it... To using the Moog synthesizer or... Well, in, in actually creating it. He was one of the people in, in making it. And he's the one that uh, produced the first popcorn song before Hot Butter did it later oh, okay. and made it a hit. But it was his thing. So this, I love this because it's a weird kind of avant-garde type of thing. And I, when you listen to side one, uh, you hear the narrator speak, but it's almost like weird, you know, haiku of horror. <laughs> and they go through these little vignettes with very cool, like, um, you know, sound effects. And at one point they go to the goblin dance and that's a very cool one. And you can see some of his creepy synth work. But on the back, the second side, um, that's when you can really hear it. And that is um, where it's supposed to be ghosts in space. But anyway, we're just going to let you listen to that one because that's going to like a drug trip. So the excerpt is going to be from ghosts in space? Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's, it's called Ghostly Sounds Part 2. Once upon a star, far, far away past the moon and Mars and Jupiter, there were ghosts. They were different from the ghosts we know. Because they lived in outer space, the sounds they made were different. Their sighing was different. Their moaning was different. Their crying was different. And they were sad at Halloween because they had nothing to do. No houses to haunt like our ghosts. No people to scare, there was none. No tricks to play except on each other. So they decided to discover a real Halloween. 
So you can see that's a pretty wacky record right there. I, I love it. Anyway, and that makes it number seven. All right, that means I got number six. And number six is called Dr. Druid's Haunted Seance. <laughs> <laughs> and what is this thing? So Dr. Druid's Haunted Seance, uh, I think was put out in 1972. But the thing about Dr. Druid's Haunted Seance that I love and uh, is always kind of a fun thing is that it was it was like a how to host your, a murder, but with a seance. And so you put your seance on and they gave pretty explicit liner notes on how to put the whole thing on and then the guy came on and he did a seance and it was in stereo so that stereo, the, the, when they actually did the uh the call and response with the the ghost when he started you know we started entering the spirit medium spirit world uh a ghostly womanly voice would come out of the other channel and it would be like you know you, and it and it so the, here's the here's a few of the instructions uh, read carefully Dr. Druid's Haunted Seance Instructions. Important. This album has been recorded in stereo. However, the only part of the record which will come through your second channel is the segment on side two wherein the spirit voice makes contact with the seance. And is that supposed to... <laughs> it shows you the humbug? You're supposed to play that while you're doing the seance? Yeah, therefore, the heightened, to heighten the effect, obtain a small 8-inch speaker with plenty of cord and affix it under your seance table or a lamp hanging from a near ceiling, from your ceiling. In the, uh, in the manner, the spirit voice will seem to be coming from the netherworld and give a truly chilling touch to your seance. Nice. And they have also extra seance instructions like to sit at a round table and hold hands and... Uh, and uh, and do it at night, you know, in the dark, those kind of things. And the uh, the liner notes are very specific. They go through, um, I mean, they go through all kinds of things. There's parts of this seance. There's cemetery serenade, the war of the werewolf, deep in a tomb. Oh, so those are just extra stuff they throw in. Dance macabre. No, for, for you know, for this you'll need a a glass of of of. Uh, pottery uh mixing bowl and two small <laughs> music boxes well these are different kinds of seances then? there's all kind no it's all part of one. Oh my <laughs> god this is a seance so, extravaganza so, so uh as you can see i'll show you they have the, these big instructions and then they also have this whole thing that was on the back oh of the cover anyways it's 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 fun the one thing i would say it's better for for um for younger people, because I think that the the voice that they use is the you know the kind of the narrator of the seance is is uh, I, it's just a notch below what I like. The woman, the ghostly voice is awesome, and the and the guy is I don't know. It's not not as as great a voice as like you know Paul Frees or somebody like that. And if they would have got that, it would have been the best record of all time. But, nice. But but anyways, it's great fun. You guys can have your seance. You can get the. Get the instructions off the internet and uh, have a have a big seance and uh, and so that's why that is number six and it's called Doctor Druid's Haunted Seance. Very good. Welcome, seekers of the unknown. I am Doctor Druid your spirit medium. 
and it is my deep pleasure to welcome you to the fold of my haunted seance, an adventure into the shadows of the supernatural, where most mortals dare not tread. We shall attempt to solve one of the great puzzles of this or any other civilization. The timeless question, is there life after death? Does the human soul, the inner personality, survive the death of the body? From everywhere in the world, in all ages, have come tales of prophetic dreams, premonitions, apparitions, visitations from beyond the veil, the belief in something, something foreign in matter and substance to we the living, something that defies further description other than to say the forces those who wait for us beyond. So, my adventuresome friends, we shall presently form the inner circle for the purpose of communicating with someone or something that may even now be hovering at your side or behind you there in the shadows through our haunted seance, we will make contact. Presently, you may sense their nearness, or even feel that cold touch on your flesh. And we will come to know them. Well, we move on to number five. And this one I've used in more haunted houses than any other record. <laughs> Taking pieces of it. And, and then at one point I used to just put the record on and then I would run in at the moment when it would get a little slack and then put it up again. Wait a minute. Are you saying that you created hip-hop, Frank Rydberg, with, the, <laughs> with this record? No. <laughs> We're using two taper turntables at the t- at the time. Just, no, just one. That's why it's just chimpy, oh, okay. cheapy haunted house. And that, uh, <laughs> This was Sounds That Make You Shiver, and it's from 1974. And this had one of the greatest album covers, too. And this, for the next three records, they're all connected because all three records had the same artists who did the artwork on the covers, and all three of the next ones that I do were produced by Wade Denning. And Wade Denning was a, uh, he used to be a conductor for Big Band. And then he became the Sessions uh, producer at Pickwick Records. And uh, and that was the book and record company. Did Pickwick did, did novelty and then books and that kind of thing? Or did it do music as well? I don't know if they did the music. I only know the kids' records, the stuff they put out. And this is one of them. And, and the, like I said, the next three are all these guys combined. And Wade Denning, he has a great voice. 
you know, and he's just a little bit. He the beginning of this record has a woman beaten with a chain by I guess Dracula, and it's Wade with his laughing hideously. Uh, well, here we'll give you a little sample. Which incidentally, my mother hated. <laughs> oh yeah, she. I would have to take the record off immediately. I'd have to start it after that, and then later on, mixed with all the. Because side one is like most of the records. It's the whole a night at a haunted house or whatever. And um, and then the other side had specific sounds. But anyway, listen to the beginning. They used to drive my mom crazy. to visit a haunted house. Hmm. So now you can see what upset my mom. Oh, yeah. The cover, like I said, was fantastic. It was like a castle that suddenly monsters just burst out of. There's like this tentacled, one-eyed creature out the window. Frankenstein's marching down the street, and it looks like his lab table and stuff is just getting shoved out the door by whatever's coming out. There's a witch. There's like a one-eyed Yeti-type thing. There's all these wonderful creatures, and on the back is this be- beautiful skull, and that was what was on the record face too. It was fantastic. Uh, I guess the most disturbing to listen to, as far as far as the victim is concerned. Anyway, that makes it a good number five, and a hell of a children's record. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So number four is. From our old buddy, uh, Spike Jones. <laughs> nice. What's this one? And of all things, it's called Spike Jones in Stereo. But it's also known as Spike Jones in Hi-Fi and a spooktacular in Screaming Sound. <laughs> is this different records that were put out? The, or this is a coll- the same album? This is a collection. I'm surprised you don't know this, Frank, because this is a collection of songs that Spike Jones did with the guest stars. Uh... Paul Fries. Oh, nice. Uh, uh, Lily Jean Norman and Thoreau Ravenscroft. Oh, killer. <laughs> and George Rock. And George Rock is uh, the guy you might know, uh, uh, well, everybody should know, is the guy that voiced uh, All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth, which oh, okay, is yeah. Spike Jones' only number one hit. Yeah, oh, and yeah. so and he did the Swam Over the Dam Fishes song, too. So... So this this album is a collection of of, of spooky songs. Were they on his Halloween done shows? Done in the tradition of Spike Jones, where there's yeah. all kinds of weird whistles and and jugs and you know whatever. So they must have uh, my old flame on there. Is one of so they have, and uh, it has I only have eyes for you, and that's Lily Jean Norman, and she's doing it in the in sort of the fashion of uh, of uh, Vampira. Okay. And uh, Poison to Poison, uh, Teenage Brain Surgeon, which will be our excerpt from this, and it's sung by Thurl Ravenscroft. Nice. Right? Uh, all of a sudden, my heart sings. Everything happens to me, and that's in, a, in, a, uh, in the style of Boris Karloff, singing Everything Is Happens to Freeze? Me. Is that Paul Freeze? 
I couldn't tell, but uh, okay. I, I think I think it is. And then they have like a spectacular f- finale, and they do different voices where it's like a Peter Lorre, and they, it's these guys doing. And I'm sure it's Paul Frees doing all the voices, <laughs> right? Because well, and Thorough Ravenscroft doing anything bassy, but I, I, yeah. I did, did he have a uh, a particular knack for? He didn't have as much of a range, but still. But Spike Jones did the drums, the some vocals, and band leader. He was a band leader, and Paul Frees. Uh, did the vocals and then all the impersonations. Oh, okay. Uh, so, and then uh, Luli Jean Norman did vocal, and she did some impersonations as well uh, for the women. And then Thoreau Ravencroft, he did the vocals. No, no impersonations. Yeah. And uh, George it- Rock did the trumpet and the vocals, and Ken Stevens does the, did the vocals. And it's an interesting album because there's like some jazz influence, there's some hillbilly influence, and then there's some well, just, yeah, gunfire and you know, just wacky yeah. stuff. Yeah, firing and uh, a lot of instrumentals. Plus, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, talking on it where you know the vamp, you know, uh, Count Dracula's good evening, and you know they're playing Badger off each other. And yeah, forth. and it's but it's all done in a in a comical way. So. Spike Jones and Stereo, which has nothing to do with anything spooky, but it's 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 actually called Spike Jones and Stereo, and it's also known as Spike Jones and Hi-Fi, a spooktacular in screaming sound. I was out of grade school at six, high school at eight. College at ten and a half And after three years pre-med I was the head Doctor of brain surgery After operating I'd pause Tighten the gauze Wait for applause While my patients laughed Hysterically Obviously They were in stitches over me I was a teenage brain surgeon A teenage brain Surgeon, a knocked out fractured brain surgeon, the sharpest operator in town. While the other kids were digging, Dick Clark from coast to coast. I was a digging doctor, killed there like man, you know the most. Even when I was in grade school, I had that medical look. I never got past the appendix Whenever I opened a book Scalpel Scalpel Forceps Forceps Suture Suture Anesthetic Whenever I went out dancing to make my night complete, I brought along my stethoscope. Man, you hear the wildest beat. 
one night the band was playing I've got you under my skin I scared a fella half to death when I said, may I cut in? I was a teenage brain surgeon, a teenage brain surgeon, a rockin' rollin' brain surgeon, the sharpest operator in time. And what the heck was that? Was that number four? That was four. Ah, well then this must be three. This is, oh my gosh, I love this one. And we've used a lot of these on the podcast over these last couple of years. This is Famous Ghost Stories with Scary Sounds. It's from Pickwick also. It's from 1975. Like I said before, the same artist did the, did the cover. Well, not the cover, the back of it, which illustrates the stories that were on the record. And uh, the first time I heard these, though... Because um, the same time the album came out, they also licensed it to uh, Post Serials. And there were these flexi-discs, cardboard flexi-discs on the back of uh, Honeycomb and Alphabets and stuff. And uh, I, I, we never got that kind of cereal, but my friend Jack did. And so we cut them off and we listened to them. And uh, I think the one I always loved was the, um, the Hitchhiker Ghost Story. Uh, but they had a bunch of them from that. That's so funny that honeycomb. That man, it was so cool until <laughs> you guys got actual stuff that Yeah, that, that was, was cool. worth having, not yeah, just right? little trinkets or whatever, beads. Uh, eventually I got the album though. And and uh, so that was cool. I had all of them together. And the sound was good. It's that Wade Denning again. He produced the record and um this is his best voice work, I think. Very creepy, very good acting. It's beautiful. He's also the guy, I don't know if anyone's heard it, He he's the one that came up with the lyrics for the Halloween song. It's the H-A-L-L-O-W-E-N song, whatever. It's sung to Dance Macabre. Oh. And it was big, the 70s, when they had nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so this big band leader became kind of famous with kid records. Anyway, here we'll show you a sample uh, of my favorite story, of course, uh, the signalman. <laughs> oh, nice! Incidentally, we use this in a haunted house. <laughs> That's right, for a runaway train, ghost train. During a stroll through the countryside, I found myself on the road above a tunnel through which the railroad tracks pass. Down below was a tiny station which was maintained by the signal man who was standing near the great iron bars which are the means of switching the tracks. I shouted down to him, Hello down there! Before he could answer, there was a vibration in the earth which quickly turned into a violent pulsation as a train roared out of the tunnel. disappeared down the tracks. He folded his signal flag and beckoned me to come down. I found my way and joined him at the small building. He looked at me as if he was afraid. When I asked if anything was wrong, he said he thought he might have seen me before. When I asked where, he pointed at the red light at the mouth of the tunnel. I was quite puzzled as I followed him into the little house. Inside, there was a fire, a desk, and a telegraphic instrument, and that was all. I asked what he meant when he pointed to the red light. 
Instead of answering, he asked a most strange question. What made me call out, Hello down there! Why those exact words? So you can see his artwork there, his beautiful voice. And uh, anyway, that way it makes it a good number four. And so that leaves us to... No, no, that was number three. <laughs> oh, all right. I can't count. That was three. And What's two? So we that leads us to number two. And number two is actually, uh, we're bringing back an, an old favorite. Uh, we actually did the Velvet Ribbon as a scholastic book, uh, pretentious reading. And that was from this book, The Haunted House and Other Spooky Poems and Tales. And they had a companion record. And that companion record is called selections from the haunted house and other spooky poems and tales and that is our number two and that is exactly what it sounds like it's a great collection of the stories that are in that book and they're done really well and there's poems as well there's a poem called dirt about a a woman who who uh hated dirt and ends up of course being buried in dirt when she's dead <laughs> dust she hated dust and she had dust on her eyes that was the I, that's yeah. the last thing and and um uh, also, they had uh, uh, The Haunted House, which is a poem, A Skeleton Once in Khartoum, Dust, which I just spoke of, The Bat, and a The Velvet Ribbon, of course, and then, of course, the excerpt that we're going to use, which is The Cradle That Rocked By Itself. Nice. And so, uh, all of these are spooky stories. They're actually the... F like really fun and this is actually kind of the closest thing to where you'd be like okay in 1970s this was a children's record i don't know if your children would you would like your children to see it today because it is kind of hideous but they're all in good fun and uh they're really spooky and uh not you know today if you see like a goosebumps or whatever some of it's kind of cheesy and it's not as hard biting as they would have say on this record and that's why that's why i love it because it's actually super spooky with, with a little bit of an edge, like anybody can handle that's 10, but nobody realizes. So All anyways, right. number, number two. There was a raging storm at sea. The wind howled and lashed around many a snug house in many a little town up and down the coast of Maine. Many a ship at sea was in trouble that night, and some were never heard from again. I hear a baby crying out there, said a woman, in one warm kitchen in one of those little towns. But the rest of the family said it was the wind howling, or seals maybe, for a frightened baby seal often cries like a baby. The woman said no. She knew in her heart it was a baby. How could it be, said the others. Nobody went out to look. The next morning they found a cradle washed ashore out of some ship, and they took it up to the house for it was a good cradle, and they used it for every baby that came along year after year. But there was one strange thing about it. Every time the wind blew a gale, the cradle would rock by itself. All by itself in the warm room, with the wind roaring outside, the cradle would rock just as if someone were sitting by it, gently rocking a child. This happened so often that the family got used to it, 
No harm ever came of it, and the baby liked it. So they just got used to it and didn't mind. Then one time the woman's sister came to visit. As they were setting the table for supper one night, the sister glanced into the next room. Who is that woman rocking the cradle? she said. Woman? That's no woman. The cradle rocks by itself. It is too a woman, said the sister. She has long black hair, and her face is white and sad, and she's sitting there rocking the cradle and bending over the baby. Nobody else could see her. But the mother grabbed up her baby, and the next day they took the cradle outdoors and chopped it up for kindling wood. And when the wood was burning in the fire, they could hear some baby crying somewhere, crying and crying for its cradle. But after that, they never heard it again. That was good. Short and good. All right, number two. Now to number one. Bum, ba, da, bum. <laughs> this is this is an example of something that I don't think is appropriate for kids before or now. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why it's number one. I love it. It's from Pickwick again, 1974. It was also produced by Wade Denning, and he narrated it as well. And the, But the script was by Frank Daniel. He, he was from Czech Republic, and he was a director and a writer and a producer of film. But when he came over here, he, he mostly what Americans know him for is he was a teacher of film at Columbia University, uh, American Film Institute, and he was involved with the Sundance Festival. I think he was there, you know, in charge of one of the ones getting the films together, Selections choosing them. Or whatever, yeah. And, uh, but this is when he first came to the country, and I don't know how much English he knew, so some of these are a little oddly worded. But this one is pretty disturbing, really. The, the cover is by the same artist, and this is a great kind of gory vampire. And, uh, and it begins with kind of a lame version of the Monster Mash. And then it goes on on the first side to do... Just sort of monster stuff. Some of it's fun, like King Kong. But then they have the werewolf, which, you know, has a guy being torn to pieces by a werewolf. And then Jack nice. the Ripper. Nice. But the other side is the one that's more grim. And that's entitled Man's Inhumanity to Man. And it has uh, someone being buried alive, burned at the stake, guillotine, having being exercised of demons. And all has these great sinister sound effects. Uh, like the sizzling flesh, and then it's all these people in agony, and all this weird, strange, just why on earth would you think that this would be great for kids? I don't know, but I'm so glad they did it. Amazing. Uh, and here, we're going to have a bunch of clips of this stuff, because you have to hear it. And there again, Wade Denning, the wonderful man, <laughs> I, the big band leader who made us all happy by having, warping our lives with these kind of records. Going to the macabre. <laughs> so let's listen. <laughs> to die is a fate that must come to us all. But how horrible to be buried alive. Imagine the hell of lying trapped in your own coffin, your heart beating wildly, every gasping breath using up the valuable oxygen. 
This death by suffocation has befallen many a demented creature after attempts to claw himself out of his entombment. <laughs> the possession of one's mind by the devil is a horrifying specter. To purge the devil from the soul of man, the power of religion is invoked to fight the demonic forces. Listen to the scourging of the devil by this exorcist. May the power of Christ compel you. 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 So there you have it. There's our number one record. Uh, I I know you all have your favorites out there. And uh, as a special treat, we can't go away, even though we said we weren't going to have anything about the Haunted Mansion record. We are. We have to have the opening High in a Hilltop New Year Home introduction. So I, there was a, a lady in church when I was a kid who had that same voice. And... Uh, <laughs> I would just wait for her to, you know, read stuff from the Bible because she'd have the voice like that off the chilling, thrilling sounds of the haunted house. <laughs> awesome. But anyway, here you have it. The opening to the thrilling, chilling sounds of the haunted mansion. You are a bold and courageous person, afraid of nothing. High on a hilltop near your home, there stands a dilapidated old mansion. Some say the place is haunted, but you don't believe in such myths. One dark and stormy night, a light appears in the topmost window in the tower of the old house. You decide to investigate, and you never return. Big coward, so I'll tell you what to do. 
Hush, 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 here comes the boogeyman. Don't let him come too close to you, he'll catch you if he can. Just pretend that you're a crocodile, and you will find that boogeyman will run away a mile. Say shoo, shoo, and stick him with a pin. Boogeyman will very nearly jump out of his skin. Say buzz, buzz, just like the wasp that stings. Boogeyman will think you are an elephant with wings. Hush, 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 here comes the boogeyman. Tell him you've got soldiers in your bed, for he will never guess that they are only made of lead. Say hush, hush, he'll think that you're asleep. If you make a lovely snore away, he'll softly creep. Sing this tune, you children one and all. Bogeyman will run away, he'll think it's Henry Hall. When the shadows of the evening creep across the sky, and your mommy comes upstairs to sing a lullaby, tell her that the bogeyman no longer frightens you. Uncle Henry's very kindly told you what to do. Hush, 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 here comes the bogeyman. Don't let him come too close to you, he'll catch you if he can. Just pretend your teddy bear's a dog. Then shout out, fetch him, teddy, and he'll hop off like a frog. Pretend that you're a cat He'll think you may scratch And that will make him fall down flat Just pretend he isn't really there You will find that Boogeyman Will finish in thin air Here's one way to catch him without fail Just keep a little salt with you And put it on his tail Very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am, but why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how, how healthily, how, how calmly I, I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how, how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it, it haunted me day and night. Object there was none, passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I, I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. One of his eyes resembled that of a vulture, a, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to 
take the life of the old man and thus to rid myself of the eye forever. Now, this is the point. You fancy me mad. <laughs> Madmen know nothing, but you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. <laughs> and every night, about midnight, I, I turned the latch of his door and I opened it, oh, so so gently, and then when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed so that no light shone out, and then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how, how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it very slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. <laughs> now, would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously. Oh, so cautiously I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. This I did for seven long nights, every night at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work. For it was not the old man that vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night, just at 12, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers. I, I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. I had my head in the room and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped on the tin fastening and the old man sprang up in the bed crying out, Who's there? For a whole hour I did not move a muscle. In the meantime, I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed, listening. Presently, I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of long, drawn-out, mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh, no. No, it was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it had welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that, that distracted me. I say I, I knew it well. I, I knew what the old man felt, and I pitied him, although I, I chuckled at heart. I, I, I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. 
his fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, it's nothing but the wind in the chimney. It's only a mouse crossing the floor. It is merely a, a cricket which has made a, a single chirp. Yes, yes, he'd been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found it all in vain because death in approaching him had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. He felt the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. Oh, you cannot imagine how stealthily, until at length a single dim ray, like the thread of a spider, shot from out the crevice and full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue, with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow of my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the rays as if by instinct precisely on the damned spot. Now, have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over, over acuteness of the senses? Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier to courage. But even yet, I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous, so I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of this old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror, yet for some minutes longer I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder and louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now, a new anxiety seized me. The, the sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw the lantern and leapt into the room. It shrieked once, only once. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled a heavy bed over him. Uh, I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. Many minutes the heart beat on with a muffled sound. Still, this did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall, and then at last it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there for many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. 
Now, if, if you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. First, I, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and then the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and I deposited all beneath the floor. I then replaced the boards so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatsoever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught it all. <laughs> And then, when I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded, there came a, a knocking at the street door. I, I went down to open it with a light heart, for, for what did I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused, and, and they, the officers, had been dispatched to search the premises. I smiled, for what had I to fear? I bade the gentleman welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man I mentioned was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house, and I bade them search and search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues. While I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted familiar things. But ere long, I, I felt myself getting pale, and I wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a, a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and they chatted. The ringing became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definitiveness until at length I, I found that the noise was not within my ears. It was a low, dull, quick sound, such, as, such a sound as a watch makes. Enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and I, I argued about trifles, but the noise increased steadily. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observation of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh, God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting, grated it upon the boards, but the noise rose above all. It, it 
grew louder, louder, and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible that they heard not? Oh, almighty God, no, no, they heard. They suspected. They knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. Now again, hark, louder, 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 villains, dissemble no more, I admit the deed, tear up the planks, here, it is the beating of this hideous heart. Our planet may be doomed, our Earth devastated, the monsters are in revolt, and civilization is in chaos. Godzilla is laying waste to New York, Rodan is attacking Moscow, Manda is smashing London, and Peking trembles under the wrath of Mafra. Our battle cry must be, destroy all monsters. Monster, monster. Who can say which country or city will be next? We must unite and destroy all monsters. Is there a way to defend against Godzilla, Rodan, Manda, and Mothra? The answer is no. Let our battle cry be, destroy all monsters. Be prepared. See for yourself in color from American International. Destroy all monsters. Monster. 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 This picture is rated G for general audiences. Destroy all monsters. Monster. 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 hideous things which happened on the battlefields of the great war. Some of these things have made me faint, others have convulsed me with devastating nausea, while still others have made me tremble and look behind me in the dark. Yet despite the worst of them, I believe I can myself relate the most hideous thing of all, the shocking, the unnatural, the unbelievable horror from the shadows. In 1915, I was a physician with the rank of first lieutenant in a Canadian regiment in Flanders, one of the many Americans to precede the government itself into the gigantic struggle. I had not entered the army of my own initiative, but rather as a natural result of the enlistment of the man whose indispensable assistant I was, the celebrated Boston surgical specialist, Dr. Herbert West. Dr. West had been avid for a chance to serve as a surgeon in a great war, and when the chance had come, he carried me with him almost against my will. There were reasons why I found the practice of medicine and the companionship of West more and more irritating. But when he had gone to Ottawa and, through a colleague's influence, secured a medical commission as major, I could not resist the imperious persuasion of one determined that I should accompany him in my usual capacity. When I say that Dr. West was avid to serve in battle, I don't mean to imply that he was either naturally warlike or anxious for the safety of civilization. Always an ice-cold intellectual machine, I think he secretly sneered at my occasional martial enthusiasms and censures of supine neutrality. There was, however, something he wanted in embattled flanters, and in order to secure it, 
he had to assume a military exterior. What he wanted was not a thing which many persons want. It was, in fact, nothing more or less than an abundant supply of freshly killed men in every stage of dismemberment. Herbert West needed fresh bodies because his life work was the reanimation of the dead. This work was not known to the fashionable clientele who had so swiftly built up his fame after his arrival in Boston, but was only too well known to me, who had been his closest friend and sole assistant since the old days in Miskatonic University Medical School at Arkham. In college, and during our early practice together in the factory town of Bolton, my attitude toward him had been one largely of fascinated admiration, but as his boldness in methods grew, I began to develop a gnawing fear. I did not like the way he looked at healthy living bodies. And then there came a nightmarish session in the cellar laboratory when I learned that a certain specimen had been a living body when he secured it. That was the first time that he had ever been able to revive the quality of rational thought in a corpse. And his success, obtained at such a loathsome cost, had completely hardened him. Of his methods in the intervening five years, I dare not speak. I was held to him by the sheer force of fear and witnessed sights that no human tongue should repeat. Gradually, I came to find Herbert West himself more horrible than anything he did. That was when it dawned on me that his once normal scientific zeal for prolonging life had subtly degenerated into a mere morbid and ghoulish curiosity and secret sense of charnel picturesqueness. His interest became a hellish and perverse addiction to the repellently and fiendishly abnormal. He gloated calmly over artificial monstrosities which would make most healthy men drop dead from fright and disgust. He became, behind his pallid intellectuality, a fastidious Baudelaire of physical experiment. Dangers he met unflinchingly, crimes he committed unmoved. I think the climax came when he had proved his point that rational life can be restored and then sought new worlds to conquer by experimenting on the reanimation of detached parts of bodies. He had wild and original ideas on the independent vital properties of organic cells and nerve tissues separated from natural physiological systems, and he achieved some hideous preliminary results in the form of never-dying, artificially nourished tissue obtained from the nearly hatched eggs of an indescribable tropical reptile. Two biological points he was exceedingly anxious to settle. First, whether any amount of consciousness and rational action be possible without the brain, proceeding from the spinal cord and various nerve centers. And second, whether any kind of ethereal, intangible relation distinct from the material cells may exist to link the surgically separated parts of what was previously a single living organism. All this research work required a prodigious supply of freshly slaughtered bodies, and that was why Herbert West had entered the Great War. The phantasmal, unmentionable thing occurred one night late in March of 1915 in a field hospital behind the lines at St. Eloy. I wonder even now if it could have been other than a demonic dream of delirium. 
West had a private laboratory in an east room of a barn-like temporary edifice assigned to him on his pleas that he was devising new and radical methods for the treatment of hitherto hopeless cases of maiming. There he worked like a butcher in the midst of his gory wares. I could never get used to the levity with which he handled and classified certain things. At times he actually did perform marvels of surgery for the soldiers, but his chief delights were of less public and philanthropic kind, requiring many explanations of sounds which seemed peculiar even amidst the babble of the damned. Among these sounds were frequent revolver shots, surely not uncommon on a battlefield, but distinctly uncommon in a hospital. Dr. West's reanimated specimens were not meant for long existence or a large audience. Besides human tissues, West employed much of the reptile embryo tissue which he had cultivated with such singular results. It was better than human material for maintaining life in organless fragments, and that was now my friend's chief activity. In a dark corner of the laboratory over a queer incubating burner, he kept a large covered vat full of this reptilian cell matter, which multiplied and grew puffily and hideously. On the night of which I speak, we had a splendid new specimen, a man at once physically powerful and of such high mentality that a sensitive nervous system was assured. It was rather ironic, for he was the officer who had helped West to his commission and who was soon to have been our associate. Moreover, he had in the past secretly studied the theory of reanimation to some extent under West. Major Sir Eric Moreland Clapham Lee was the greatest surgeon in our division and had been hastily assigned to the St. Eloy sector when news of the heavy fighting reached headquarters. He had come in an aeroplane piloted by the intrepid Lieutenant Ronald Hill, only to be shot down when directly over his destination. The fall had been spectacular and awful. Hill was unrecognizable afterward, but the wreck yielded up the great surgeon in a nearly decapitated but otherwise intact condition. West had greedily seized the lifeless thing which had once been his friend and fellow scholar, and I shuddered when he finished severing the head and placed it in his hellish vat of pulpy reptile tissue to preserve it for future experiments, and then proceeded to treat the decapitated body on the operating table. He injected new blood, joined certain veins, arteries, and nerves at the headless neck, and closed the ghastly aperture with engrafted skin from an unidentified specimen which had borne an officer's uniform. I knew what he wanted to see if this highly organized body could exhibit, without its head, any of the signs of mental life which had distinguished Sir Eric Moreland Clapham Lee. Once a student of reanimation, this silent trunk was now gruesomely called upon to exemplify it. I can still see Herbert West under the sinister electronic light as he injected his reanimating solution into the arm of the headless body. The scene I cannot describe. I should faint if I tried. For there is madness in a room full of classified charnel things with blood and lesser human debris almost ankle-deep on the slimy floor. 
and with hideous reptilian abnormalities sprouting, bubbling, and baking over a winking bluish-green specter of dim flame in a far corner of black shadows. The specimen, as West repeatedly observed, had a splendid nervous system. Much was expected of it, and as a few twitching motions began to appear, I could see the feverish interest in West's face. He was ready, I think, to see proof of his increasingly strong opinion that consciousness, reason, and personality can exist independently of the brain, that man has no central connective spirit, but is merely a machine of nervous matter, each section more or less complete in itself. In one triumphant demonstration, West was about to relegate the mystery of life to the category of myth. The body now twitched more vigorously, and beneath our avid eyes commenced to heave in a frightful way. The arms stirred disquietingly, the legs drew up, and various muscles contracted in a repulsive kind of writhing. Then the headless thing threw out its arms in a gesture which was unmistakably one of desperation, an intelligent desperation, apparently sufficient to prove every theory of Herbert West's. Certainly, the nerves were recalling the man's last act in life, the struggle to get free from the falling airplane. What followed, I shall never positively know. It may have been wholly an hallucination from the shock caused at that instant by a sudden and complete destruction of the building in a cataclysm of German shellfire. Who can gainsay it? since West and I were the only proved survivors. West liked to think that before his recent disappearance, but there were times when he could not, for it was queer that it, we both had the same hallucination. The hideous occurrence itself was very simple, notable only for what it implied. The body on the table had risen with a blind and terrible groping, and we had heard a sound I shall not call that sound a voice, for it was too awful. And yet its timber was not the most awful thing about it. Neither was its message. It merely screamed, Jump, Ronald, for God's sakes, jump. The awful thing about it was the source of the sound. For it had come from the large covered vat in that ghoulish corner of crawling black shadows. Far away, in an unknown place, there is a forgotten island where fear has lived unchallenged until now. The island of Dr. Moreau, where a madman has unlocked a secret of nature and unleashes the terrors of hell. The island of Dr. Moreau, where strange creatures, half man, half beast, turn a tropical paradise into a raging jungle. Where lost souls shriek in the night, and man is no longer safe from the creatures who now stalk him. The island of Dr. Moreau, from American International, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. So that wraps up Podcast 25, our Halloween show tonight. But before we go, James has one more thing for us. Well, maybe some of you know and maybe some of you don't, 
but the great Dodger announcer Vin Scully retired this month. And so as a treat, we have a sampling of his calls from his great repertoire. So this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. And see you next time. Bottom of the second inning, no score, and the subject is Mike Matheny. Matheny, 44 years old, come the end of September, born in Ohio, lives in Missouri. But he was not even 18 years old, and he came to the University of Michigan with a major league dilemma. Earlier that summer, the Toronto Blue Jays had drafted a catching prospect in the 31st round, but Matheny decided to honor his college commitments, but he had a lot of doubts. Getting drafted was a dream come true. And if he waited till later on, the next time the offer would be less or not forthcoming at all. So he was a young man, not 18, and a lot of pressure. Should I turn pro or go to college? Major League Baseball rules allow players to sign with teams up until a player officially enters college full-time. That's the key, full-time. Anyway... Matheny showered, ready to go to class for the first day. Walked out of the dormitory, stomach knotted, and a pigeon defecated directly on his head. Now, conventional wisdom would suggest the bird bombing was a sign that he should hit the road. But Matheny had to go back and clean up. The pitch to Uribe, a strike, 0 and 1 to count. He went back and showered and cleaned up and decided. All of a sudden, he was at peace. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to go to college. And there was one other thing that happened. The strike one pitch swung on and missed, 0-2. Matheny went to his first class, and when he reached class, he noticed a pretty field hockey player named Kristen. And he would marry her and live happily ever after. And that's the story of Mike Matheny and the bird poop. As Uribe hasn't much of a swing as he returns against a great pitcher and strikes out. Pretty hard to figure out, and in doing a little research about why and how Friday the 13th became such a superstition, you have to go back maybe to an 1869 biography of a musician where they referred to it as a bad day. The pitch to AJ is low. In numerology, the number 12 is considered completeness. You know, 12 months of the year, 12 hours on the clock, 12 gods of Olympus, 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles of Jesus, the 12 successes of Muhammad in Shia Islam, 12 signs of the zodiac for that matter as well. The 2 2 pitch on the way is inside ball three. The number 13, however, is considered irregular. You might not know it, I never did. In Spanish-speaking countries, instead of Friday, Tuesday the 13th is considered a day of bad luck. Tuesday the 13th, never knew that. Throw to first, not in time, Vance like diving back. And they tell me the Greeks also considered Tuesday, especially the 13th, as an unlucky day. They said it was dominated by the influence of Aras, the god of war. Three and two the count. Runner goes, pitch is high for ball four. So there'll be two on with one out. As A.J. Ellis trots to first, Van Slyke advances to second, and Mark Ellis will be coming up. 
You know, another interesting note about it, while we're waiting for a little action, in Italian popular culture, Friday the 17th is a bad day. In Italy, 13 is generally considered a lucky number. So take your pick. They also did a survey out of North Carolina, and they said anywhere from 17 to 21 million people in the United States are frightened to death about Friday the 13th. All right, here's Mark Ellis. Fortunately, where's 14? And Mark swings, fouls it back, and the count 0 and 1. Of course, we were talking before about religion and the Jewish faith. Friday, not necessarily the 13th, but the day Christ was crucified and will forever remembered on Good Friday. Oh, and one the count to Mark Ellis. He takes in the dirt. I'm not trying to get smart. Just looked it up, figuring a lot of you folks might find it a little interesting. Like you, I'd be lost without Google. I'm not trying to show off, but I just found it a little interesting. And one last thought. Some of the famous people who died on Friday the 13th, like here in Hollywood, Richard Zanuck, the wonderful chef, Julia Child. 1-1 one, one pitch. Ground ball up along third. Foul ball, no play. So Mark will have to come back and try it again. Tupac Shakur died. Benny Goodman died on Friday the 13th. Hubert Humphrey, the senator from Minnesota. The writer, Mickey Spillane. The singer, Lily Pond. Diamond Jim Brady, you might have heard of that name. Okay, I quit. I promise no more. Yeah, there goes, if you're watching on TV, there goes number 13, Hanley Ramirez. Our hero of the day was a witness of the devastating Pearl Harbor. That's when Corporal Seki volunteered for the Army. His unit was the all-Japanese-American 442nd Regimental Combat Team. It swung on and fouled back, one away. Anytime I hear Pearl Harbor... I was uh, 14 when we had Pearl Harbor. And there is our distinguished hero indeed. When I think about Pearl Harbor, I almost automatically think that's the only time I ever heard my father swear. At 14, I can see I was crawling under the big family radio and I was listening to a football game, the New York Giants football team in the NFL. The count goes to one and two. In that game, I do remember the only time the great Mel Hine was ever injured was on Pearl Harbor Day playing for the Giants. One two pitch on the way. Little nubber up along first. Shoots picks it up and throws him out. So we have two down and the battle will be up. Well, anyway, as a kid, and they interrupted the game, and my thought, why, why would they do that? The Giants were on the move. And in those days, they didn't score much at all. Hardly ever passed the ball. And so when they interrupted the football game and they said Pearl Harbor, my first thought was, that's probably in China. Because as a little boy, the Chinese and the Japanese were fighting. And the word Pearl Harbor made me immediately think of Asia and the Asian. Well, I was wrong. but So I went into the kitchen where my mother and dad were having their usual cup of tea at that time of day. 
here's Utley up there and he takes ball one. And I said to my dad who had traveled all over the world in the British Navy and anyway. And I said where's Pearl Harbor. And he said it's in the Hawaiian Islands. Why. And I said well the Japanese just bombed it. And then he let out an expletive which was really shocking because he never swore. And then he just simply said. That's war. And I remember going back listening to the giant game not not giving you much of a thought. Wow what a beginning.